our world is awash in bad news. Just read the front page of the local newspaper, that's all it takes. A sampling from this week, widespread, entrenched economic woes. Reputed terrorists to be tried at Guantanamo. Two teens commit suicide at a sleepover. U.S. drones open fire in Libya, where a civil war near stalemate as citizens continue to die. A deadly crackdown in Syria and raging conflicts across the Middle East. The nearly total acquittal of a group of Pakistani men who gang-raped a woman. A brutal rape ordered by a tribal court as a means of punishing her brother. British Petroleum estimates of fines and penalties and the like, $21 billion for oil cleanup. Tornadoes, a tsunami with thousands yet unaccounted for, wildfires, Asian carp, and the Minnesota Twins are falling apart. It's been that kind of a week. That kind of a week every week as news such as this continues to flow into our collective experience in this groaning planet. Every single day there's bad news. But we gather this Lord's Day to announce and celebrate the reality that there is a source of good news that operates with transforming power in this waking world. This good news, this life-giving, life-changing news is not the message about a religion, about a creed, about a particular church. It's not a message about a plan as such. This good news, this life-giving, life-changing news is found in a person. It is found in the risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ whom we gather to worship here today. So in light of that truth, I ask this question to you pointedly. Have you discovered this good news that is found in relationship with Jesus Christ? You know what that means to enter into living relationship with Him. Have you embraced this good news and experienced its power to change your life? It is this life-transforming news that the Apostle Paul seeks to describe at great length in his first century letter to the followers of Jesus who are living at Rome. And I want to draw our attention this morning to that book, Romans chapter 1. To the opening of this letter, and seek then to better appreciate the wonder of the good news that is described here. Romans chapter 1. To give a little background, Paul was likely writing from the Greek city of Corinth as he awaits passage back to Jerusalem where he hopes to visit the church there in Jerusalem. Paul's been preaching now about Jesus and has been starting churches throughout the eastern Mediterranean for about a quarter of a century. So he's a seasoned missionary as he writes to the Romans. And he explains to the Roman believers, some of whom he has met in other places in his labors and knows by name, that He hopes to visit them in the near future. He hopes to teach them in fuller measure the truth about Jesus Christ. And He also hopes that they will help Him on His way from Rome to Spain, ultimately. 
So Paul travels east, Corinth to Jerusalem. His letter travels west, Corinth to Rome. And he hopes then to unite with that letter as he prepares here a summation of his theology for them to think about in the meantime as he makes the journey he trusts from Corinth to Jerusalem to Rome and then hopefully from there again on to Spain. But what we find here in these first verses is then the prescript of this letter. They were simple in that day generally. This is the author writing to these recipients, greeting. This prescript, this introduction to the letter is a lot fuller. It's rich, in fact, full of the theology that Paul will bring out and develop in the rest of the letter. What we have here is something of a concentrated form of the Gospel that Paul preaches. Now what our task will be then is to look at this introduction to this letter today as we consider it in light of Christ and His work. We want to just make sure that we understand its basic meaning and then as we draw to conclusion here this morning to look at the astounding news that comes out of these words from the Apostle Paul. Writing to the Romans, Paul introduces himself and we consider in the first verse the author of the book, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the Gospel of God. We find, first of all, here Paul's master. He speaks of himself as a servant. That's kind of a dirty word in our culture. We don't like thinking about servants. It conjures up images of slavery and oppression and painful toil, abuse, racial injustice, and the like. But that's not the picture Paul intends to paint. Many slaves in the ancient world were people entrusted with great responsibility and there was often a good relationship between master and servant, particularly when they were entrusted with great responsibility, as will be the case here with Paul. Paul's life, what he is saying when he says, I am the servant of Christ, what he is saying is that his life is entirely at the disposal of Jesus Christ. Paul is wholly devoted to advancing the cause of Christ Jesus. My Master, he says by way of introduction, think of it, my Master is Jesus. With loyal devotion, I have dedicated my life to serve His will. Now this is really countercultural for us. We prize individualism. We prize personal freedom. We don't like going around saying, I'm so-and-so's servant. We don't like even the idea of devoting our lives to serve the interests of, of another, no matter how important they may be. But I think the key in life we find in Scripture is not that you serve, but it's who you serve. Serve a tyrant and you will be utterly miserable. And you know one of the most unrelenting tyrants in this world is self. To live under the domination of your own self-centered ambitions. Paul had lived that way for many years. We're all born in that state. To live for myself. To be free to do what I want. To serve my own will and my own purposes. He had lived that way, but then something happened. He met Jesus Christ. And from that day forward, Paul lived in the glad service of Jesus 
which he found to be the ultimate liberation, to be the slave of Christ. To live for his purposes was to live for perfect purposes. Our primary task in life then is not to seek our freedom, but to choose our master. If we choose the right master, then we will walk in genuine freedom. So if your master is a family member, a boss, a job, possessions, a drug, your own selfish ambition, whatever it will be, I can tell you one thing about you. Deep within there's misery. Because you are serving a tyrant. But serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Find Him as your Master, Paul would tell us. And you have found ultimate freedom. I have come, Jesus said, that they may have life in abundance. It's found in Him. Paul's Master. We note secondly Paul's office. God chose Paul to serve Him as an Apostle. An apostle is an official, authorized, delegate, envoy, messenger, ambassador. Someone that is chosen for a specific task. Paul is no self-appointed, self-promoting rabbi, we notice in verse 1. He's set apart for the Gospel of God. But he is called to be an apostle. He has been assigned and commissioned by God, set apart to serve a specific task. And that leads to Paul's mission. We find it there also in verse 1, and that is to serve this Gospel. So God has called him. God has chosen him. God has set him apart and assigned him a task. That task is to take this Gospel that comes from God. The content. What is that Gospel? The word means good news. What is that good news? That will be unpacked in verses 2-4. through What is important at this point is to recognize that this good news is of God. That is, it relates to God. It has to do with God. It comes from God. The Bible knows nothing of a closed universe with which God has nothing to do. The Bible speaks of a God who is a supernatural being that penetrates the natural realm and speaks to us through revelation and here through the Gospel of Christ, the good news. Now God breaks into this realm revealing His will and one aspect of that will is the message that Paul is proclaiming throughout the known world. This good news. Well, what is it? He develops it, brings out its nuances here in a very preliminary way beginning at verse 2. We find the basics of this good news. So from the author, we move now to his message and the content of that message, the Gospel, the good news, is found beginning at verse 2. Which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So whatever this Gospel is, whatever this good news is, it has been promised beforehand by the prophets of old. The good news that comes from God, we learn then, is not an afterthought. It is not plan B. The Gospel is the culmination of God's saving purposes through the ages. It is the fulfillment of what God had been promising the nation of Israel for centuries through the sacred writings of God's prophets. God has worked in ages past as He has that made promises about the salvation of His people, all of these promises ultimately concern what? Notice the first phrase of verse 3. These promises through the centuries concerning the Son. 
concerning the Son. So for centuries, the Old Testament Scriptures have been pointing to a person, namely God's Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus did not introduce the Gospel as much as He is the Gospel. He is the good news. This reality was prophesied for centuries. Where do we find it in the Old Testament? Where do we find it through the ages as God works to save His people? He will crush Satan's head in a mutual death blow. He will be an offspring. He will be the child in the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, King David. He will be born in the little village of Bethlehem to a virgin. He will live in poverty, yet he'll be buried with the rich. He will suffer a tragic, violent death. And yet, not a bone will be broken. And He will die lifted up, suspended between heaven and earth through the centuries. Prophets receiving from God evidences, tips, promises about who the Messiah would be. That word Christ means Messiah, the the anointed one of God, the one sent to be His King. All of these ages preparing for this Christ and of all these Old Testament prophecies concerning Jesus, Paul just notes one, and that's as we find here in verse 3, that He is descended from David according to the flesh. Descended from David. This one who was God's Son in eternity, think relationship when you think Son of God, not origin. This one, this Son of God from eternity became the descendant of David in time. So He is the Son of God becoming the descendant of David at a particular place. The Son becomes a man. He takes on flesh. The physical nature of Jesus is a vital part of who He is. And let's remember that as we come to close later today. But further, verse 4, He was declared, or the word appointed, to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. Who am I speaking of? Jesus Christ our Lord. As you look at that phrase there in verse 4, the Son of God in power, that's like one word, essentially. Let's put a dash in between all of those words. He is the Son of God in power. What's Paul saying here? Now, it's subtle. It's concentrated. But as we work it out and we we pull at the threads here a little bit, verse 3 speaks of what? Verse 3, we find that He is a descendant of David in the flesh. Verse 3 speaks of the eternal Son of God in flesh. Verse 4, the eternal Son of God in power. You see the contrast. So verse 3, we have incarnation. The Son of God takes on a body resulting in a state of humiliation and weakness in which Jesus as the eternal Son of God takes on flesh and dies. That's one picture of Him that is very essential to the message. He took on flesh in weakness and humility died. But verse 4 speaks of another aspect, another state. This is resurrection resulting in a state of exaltation and power after Jesus rises victoriously from the dead. 
So it's this Christ, this person who is the good news, coming in flesh, rising from the dead, and now in power and glory ministering His grace to His people. Now Paul, remember, we're in a prescript here to this letter. This is just this is just this introduction. But he's going to develop here at far greater length two basic ideas about the person of Christ and the good news attached to Him. The first aspect of that, as he will bring out at great length, is Jesus' death. As the sinless, eternal Son of God, Jesus died in the place of sinners, paying the penalty of their sin. The wages of sin is death. The consequence of breaking the law of God is judgment. So lying and lust and greed and pride and selfishness and anger and bitterness and theft, we break the law of God. And the only response an entirely holy and eternal judge can have toward those who are guilty of breaking His eternal law and sinning against His eternal holiness is to judge us. To render proper judgment. But here's the good news. In His love, God poured out the wrath of His judgment against sin upon Jesus Christ. He brought the punishment down upon His eternal Son who took on flesh in part, in order to die a real human death. Jesus died as a substitute sacrifice for human sinners, bearing the wrath of God. Jesus died. The second part, the second aspect that comes with it, is that Jesus rose from the dead. The good news is that God the Father accepted the payment that God the Son had made for sinners on the cross. So by rising from the dead, Jesus demonstrated His power over sin and death and hell. And that is good news. Those who place their trust in Jesus' death and resurrection receive forgiveness of sins. They receive the righteous standing of Jesus. They receive as a gift from God eternal life. We don't earn this. It's a result of what Christ has done. Today, the risen Christ, the Son of David, Paul wants us to understand, is now the exalted Lord. Verse 4. He's risen from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus Christ the King. He reigns in power and glory. His saving power continues to transform sinners who receive Him. This is the good news and it is operative as a power within our world as God continues to draw sinners to Himself. He's been doing this from the very beginning and He continues to do it now through Christ. Death and resurrection. That message as we come to faith and trust in it. At verse 5, we look at Paul's commission as he takes this message throughout the known world, he says, through whom, that is through Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. We see His commission. Through whom? Through Jesus. We, 
possibly an editorial we, meaning I, or it could be the other apostles as well, we have received grace and apostleship. The grace of God has moved toward us such that we have been called to be chosen by God to proclaim this message, to be representatives of Christ. Grace and apostleship has been visited upon us to bring this message, and many are responding throughout the world. You have responded to this message, apart from Paul's own witness. But that grace in apostleship is there. Why? To bring about the obedience of faith. To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of of God's name among the nations. That is, Paul proclaims Christ so that people will obey the call of the Gospel and trust Him. And so that they who once disobeyed God will have the power now to obey Him. Genuine faith in the Gospel always produces obedience. And Paul will bring this out many times. Obedience apart from faith, on the other hand, is impossible. So when sinners who naturally break God's law, who do not find the power and the ability to obey God's law, when such sinners are rescued by the power of God to begin living in obedience by faith, who gets the praise? Not the sinner, but the Savior. This is where our joy should come from in the person of Christ, but also in the work that Jesus is doing to root out sin in my life. To transform me away from the bent of my own nature and my own selfishness. To begin to live for others in love and to begin to live for Him in love. The purpose of salvation is not that we merely learn to live a better life. The purpose of salvation is that we might experience the power of the risen Christ working within us to obey by faith. A faith that obeys and obedience that depends on faith. I know Christ lives because I see His work in my life. That's where God wants us to be. And when we see Him doing that work, we bring glory and praise to Him. Now, if it's self-centered righteousness, then we bring glory and praise to ourself. This is the Pharisee. This is the hypocrite. We do righteous deeds to be seen by others. Where that righteousness is being worked out in our life in ways that we know does not come from us, we bring praise and glory to Christ. And so we gather on the Lord's day to rejoice in what He's doing. We come as sinners. We come as those who fail. We admit that to one another and confess our sins, but we also come to rejoice in songs of worship and praise knowing the risen Christ is alive. He's changing us. He's making us into His image. And I have come with this grace that has allowed me to be an apostle to bring this obedience of faith for the sake of His name among the nations. Now you're among those nations, he says in verse 6. You are called to belong to Jesus Christ. The call there is not the idea of invitation only. But here, this is the call that raises the dead. The call that comes from God that says, stand up, be alive. And it comes from God giving us salvation. That has taken place in your life. Your testimony and witness reaches me here as I write, and I rejoice that you have been called to belong 
to Jesus Christ. The idea then, it's not just the apostles like Paul who are a servant of Christ, who live their life oriented to Him, but it's a call that is upon all of our lives to live a life centered in Christ. He finally, at verse 7, gets to the recipients of the letter, the Romans themselves, to all those in Rome. Notice how he speaks of them who are loved by God and called to be saints. Now there's a wonder. They're loved by God and called to be saints. See, where it all starts is with the love of God. And that's good news. I'd be hopeless without it. It doesn't start with, here's how good I am, here's what I have done to win the favor of God. It starts with God loving sinners. It starts with His love for us. God loved us while we were sinners, Paul will say in chapter 5 and verse 8. And He called these individuals to be saints. That is a wonder. These holy ones. These ones that are set apart from the world and identified as the people of God. It's a wonder because he's speaking here primarily to Gentiles. The idea of a holy people called out of the world, separated unto God, was a concept that had been applied for centuries to the nation of Israel. Now he's speaking to Gentiles and is saying God has called you to be holy ones. You to be saints. You to be My special people. Something unique has happened with the death and resurrection of Christ when it comes to the nations, to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews who are responding to the saving work of Christ now. And Paul will bring that out in great detail in this book. For people who have embraced this good news, the consequence is the latter part of verse 7, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What is the source of grace, of divine grace and peace? Where does it come from? Divine grace and peace comes from knowing God as Father and knowing Jesus as Lord. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. From Him. That's the source. So as I indicated in the introduction, let's formulate a series of conclusions about this good news, about the Gospel of Jesus Christ. What I want to put up before your eyes here on the screen is hope is good news of unusual infinite proportions. What must I believe? What must I embrace if the grace and peace from God the Father is going to mark my life? The Gospel. The good news of salvation in Jesus Christ, first of all, is God's idea and initiative. It is of God. Verse 1. It is a plan. He has been working through the ages, verse 2. It is a plan generated by His love. It requires His calling. It is dependent upon His grace. This good news is not found in Me. It comes from Him. I must look upward to receive it, not inward to achieve it. It is God's work. 
That's good news. Number two, the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ centers upon His person and work. We must understand Jesus is the eternal Son of God. The good news is in a person. We must know who this person is. Jesus is fully man, the descendant of David in the flesh. Jesus is the crucified and risen Lord of all. Jesus is the source of grace and transforming power for sinners. If you have a different Jesus, you're worshiping a dead idol. This is who He is. This good news centers in this person. The Son of God made flesh, risen and reigning in victory as Lord. Thirdly, the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ is just that. It is news. It is not a plan by which I reform myself. It is not a scale on which my good deeds and bad deeds are weighed. It is not a call to do better than I've done before. It is news. News about something that's already happened. Something I must trust and believe and obey. Namely, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the salvation of sinners. It's news. The work has been done. Number four, the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ is a message I must believe in obedience to God and for the glory of His name. The obedience of faith. This is not news I can ignore. The good news assumes bad news. The bad news is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. The good news is that Jesus will extend grace to those who obey Him by putting their trust in His provision of salvation. Four propositions coming from this introduction to a letter. These are not ideas we can ignore. There is a call to obey the Gospel. To respond in faith to what God has provided in Christ. It is here that we must kill our individualism. It is here that we must lay on the altar our ideas of self-generated salvation and acceptance with God. It is here that our religious pedigree dies. It is here that we come with nothing but our sin and a hope in the salvation of Christ. Jesus Christ is risen. And by virtue of His victory over death, saving grace is offered to us. Saving grace is a powerful force of transformation in this world. And it is something we must embrace. So I would encourage all to come today and embrace this good news of Jesus crucified, risen, reigning as Lord, and coming again. This is good news.
that will stand for eternity for those who put their trust in Jesus Christ. Father, we bow in Your presence today with thanksgiving for the wonder of this good news. For the power of the Gospel to save. For the presence of that power in this fallen world. We praise You for Your mercies that You have provided. And now I pray for anyone who does not know Christ in this saving way. I pray that You would steer them away from thinking, I'm going to be a better person. I'm going to come to church more often. I'm going to start to get my act together. I pray, Father, that they'd understand that obedience follows faith. It stems from faith. It doesn't earn your favor. We thank You that salvation is by grace alone, and I pray for such a one that You will bring them to Yourself to know You as Savior. I pray, Father, for those who know You, who have come to embrace this message and rejoice in the work that You are doing to transform us. May we deepen in our knowledge of this message and become servants of the cause of Jesus Christ who works in this world to save sinners and to give hope and abundant life. May we become channels of that message to a needy world. Through Christ we pray. Amen.